Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, okay, couple quick things. Um, I did a podcast, as usual, on Saturday, which I hope you guys will take a look at, regarding some of the controversy and things that are going on in the news with uh, sexual abuse and rape and assault charges. This has been quite a thing since October, and I decided to consult with a doctor of psychology about it to uh, talk about this. And this, this particular doctor, Daryl Ray, is somebody who has his own podcast where he has been for years discussing issues of sex and sexuality. So I hope you guys will check that out, just something different, but we kind of delve into not the controversy of people losing their jobs or, or the celebrity controversy, but really the, the thinking and the psychology of what's going on, both with the perpetrators and those who support uh, the perpetrators, right, and uh, enable them. So anyway, check it out if you are interested in that kind of thing. The other thing I wanted to do was acknowledge over the last couple weeks we've had a few people join up on Patreon and I just wanted to acknowledge you guys by name, uh, Sean Tuhi. Uh, and if I butcher your name, it is just, you know, a, a badge of honor on this channel because I, am, I butcher everybody's name. Uh, Ludovic Durand, uh, Yvette Wallman, Dorian Stretton, Pavi Ranver, Neil McGettigan, Genedy Cove, and uh, Jose Bruna all signed up newly as patrons uh, for my channel. Thank you very much for signing up. And Colette Mallet increased her monthly amount. So really helps, guys. Uh, as you know, and as I've said many, many times, I can't really express my appreciation enough for you guys contributing to what I'm doing here so that I'm able to, that buys me more time to be able to produce this content for you guys and uh, make this channel as good as I can possibly make it. All right, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Thomas Hughes, are you able to explain what L. Ron Hubbard meant by making a perfect duplicate? Okay, I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain this one because it is very esoteric and very complicated. Uh, at least it is for most Scientologists who try to figure it out when they first dive into this whole thing. Um, and it's really probably the subject of a whole video all by itself, but I, uh, but it doesn't, it's not really one I want to make. So <laughs> instead, I think I'll, I'll just tackle it here. Um, here's the thing. If anybody is out there going, perfect duplicate, what are you talking about? Hubbard offered up in about 1954-ish, 53-54, he started offering up this idea of trying to explain why it is that auditing works, uh, Scientology counseling, right, auditing. Uh, and he had the idea of a Thetan, or spiritual entity, and that Thetan carrying around in its mind pictures, mental image pictures or facsimiles of uh, real-life incidents that had occurred in the past. And Hubbard said that a Thetan doesn't carry around, you know, uh, tons and tons and tons of these pictures. They're created newly when the person looks at a memory or idea of something that's happened in the past. The picture is created, and the picture actually has mass uh, it's, it's made of energy, sheets of energy, Hubbard called it, and that, it's, and that it exists in the physical universe. These mental image pictures are not imaginary ideas or something that the Thetan is spiritually carrying around with him. It is actual 
uh, it is made and composed of matter and energy. Very, very tiny, tiny, tiny amount. I mean, this is not like, you know, pounds and pounds of, of, of mass or energy that's being carried around with the person all the time. But that the pictures that are, um, as Hubbard put it, the ones that are, that are re-stimulated, okay, the pictures that are, that are acting on the person's body or acting on, on him to influence him, these moments of, of past trauma and stress, uh, which in Dianetics were called engrams, uh, those pictures are constantly being created by the Thetan, okay? They're always there. Um, now, th this, these are just the ones that are in re-stimulation, the ones that are, that are negatively affecting the person, right? So, um, so how do you get rid of these pictures? How do you, how do you erase them, All right? Hubbard talked about in Dianetics how you relive an incident and relate what's happening in that incident, and by doing so, by regressing to the incident and relating what happened in it, uh, you lessen the impact that that incident has on you. And uh, and Hubbard started putting this in physical terms, you know, later after, in 1953-54, when he said that these pictures are these energy sheets, right, and that they are constantly you know, being created to, to, uh, to impinge on you or affect you. And so when you erase them, okay, here's the mechanism of the perfect duplication. Here's what's supposed to be happening. A thetan creates matter, energy, space, and time simply by thinking it or considering that it exists and therefore it does. So that's the ease with which a thetan is supposed to be able to, uh, to make things, right? But over the eons of experience in the, in the physical universe, the Thetan has degraded in his ability and awareness so that he is not aware of the fact that he's got these capabilities and that he can just create things whenever he wants. That doesn't mean that the Thetan isn't creating things. It just means he's not aware of it, right? All the things around you are being created all the time by you, right? by you as a spiritual entity, so um, including these pictures. So how do you get rid of them? How do you, get, how do you reduce and erase these mental image pictures, right, that I keep putting my, my hand here to represent that are sitting right here that you can, you know, look at and see, right? How's, how do you get rid of these things? Well, Hubbard said that it is a law of the physical universe that no two objects can occupy the same space at the same time. If they do, they, they would, you know, if you were to get two things to occupy the exact same space in the exact same unit of time, then that they would, they would cancel each other out. They would disappear. They would, they, would, they would make each other go away. Okay, that's the theory. So, the idea in auditing is that when you look at a mental image picture uh, and when you... Uh, are talking about the incident in question, right? Let's say some trauma that occurred when you were five years old and you got hit over the head and knocked out and you're laying there on the, on the ground bleeding out and it's all very horrible and awful. You have sensations, perceptions of that incident recorded. Uh, whether, you know, if your eyes were closed, you still have sound and, and, and the feeling of laying on the ground and the body position is a perception and uh, gravity is a perception and, and the pain is a perception. So you still can relate, you can still go back and re-experience this 
past traumatic incident and you can talk about it. And in talking about it and in the process of, the, of answering the, the question about this incident, you are newly creating this picture of this incident and it's becoming more and more in focus and you're getting a better and better idea as you go over the incident over and over again, you're able to relate more and more about it. In so doing, you are creating in present time a perfect duplicate of this picture that is sitting there in re-stimulation. And so you're creating in the same space and time of the original picture, you're creating this new picture as you're looking at it and talking about it and, and what they call in Scientology, mocking it up. Uh, I think that comes from film use, mock-ups, you know, things that are uh, approximate, you know, creations of some kind. Um, so you're creating this new picture, it's occupying the same space and time as the old picture, and when you get it, when you get all the details of it, when you get it totally completed, then it is a perfect duplicate and it causes the original picture to vanish and suddenly poof, there is nothing there anymore. Now it doesn't mean you don't have a memory of that incident anymore or that you can't create another picture of it, but that all, this, all the energy stored up charge that was stressing you that was there all the time, now that's gone, right? And it's just another memory that you have that doesn't have any charge or harmful electronic energy connected to it anymore, and it's, and it's just vanished. That's the theory of the perfect duplicate. There is various terms Hubbard used for this. He said when you create a perfect duplicate of a thing, whether it's a mental image picture or a dog or a cat or a chair or a car or whatever the physical universe object is, if you could mock up or create a perfect duplicate of a thing that you're looking at or you know that's in the room or whatever you could make it go away you could you would make it vanish in Scientology that's called as ising it okay the thing exists it is and as is is a term for getting a perfect duplicate of the thing as it is right as you're at but Hubbard made it into a verb so you're as ising <laughs> this thing okay um, and the way that uh, just a just a little more data about this is the way that you know a thetan creates things is by by imagining them by in Scientology this is called postulating them you're creating them and when you create something it only exists for a, a fraction of a second in the physical universe, that whether it's a picture again, or a car, or a dog, or whatever. And Hubbard said that in order to make it persist, in order to get it to persist through time, that uh, you have to lie about it, you have to alter it somehow, you have to change it so that it's not exactly the thing that you created in the first place, because if it was, then you could just look at it and make it vanish. But you can't just look at things around you and make them vanish, and therefore you alter is them, right? You have to change something about it. You have to lie about the thing somehow. Now, please don't expect this to make a lot of sense. Maybe I should have started with that. I probably should have led with that statement because this is really very, very nonsensical. But this is the explanation I'm giving you because this is how Hubbard explained it took me a long time to get my wits wrapped around this whole thing and it usually as a course supervisor in Scientology when I was 
getting this across to other people through Hubbard's works, it often took a long time to get people to get their head around what the hell Hubbard was talking about with as ising and alter ising um, things. And there's other, there's other things to this too, but I won't go deeper than what I've already done because I think you're probably confused enough by all this. But if it makes any little sense at all, um, you know, it's not a simple idea. It doesn't come across as a simple idea. I can't just put it in one sentence except to say that you create something and you can get rid of it if you create a duplicate of it. And that's what is meant by that. And so I hope that that explains it enough for it to make sense, at least to answer your question. Um, and if I have to go deeper, I'll probably have to dig out the texts on it that, you know, the Hubbard lectures on it in order to, to get more detail on what he said. But I, I, I think that probably gets the craziness across well enough. Connor Revel. I had a question regarding how children are raised in Scientology. I was raised in the Mormon faith and distinctly remember a strong emphasis being placed on having ample child-friendly materials. Though there was still plenty of studying plain scripture, much of the doctrine slash stories slash church history were delivered to kids through things like cartoons and activity pages. Many of these were contained in their own magazine just for young children called The Friend whose soft edges and simple language contrasted starkly with the boring, repetitive slag that was the ensign. Things like connect the dots to form the golden plates and color in the prophets from the Book of Mormon were common sights. I know this might seem like a silly question, but is there any sort of comparable equivalent in Scientology? Something like connect the dots to form the e-meter or color in this image of L. Ron Hubbard. I would think that their approach to that would be at least partially indicative of how much effort they put towards indoctrinating kids in the church. From the testimonials I've heard, most didn't join or weren't active until they were at least teenagers. Is there less of a focus on kids since there's considerably less money to be fleeced out of them? Does the focus just fall squarely on the parents instead, trusting them to teach their kids instead of taking a more direct approach? Whatever, whatever the reality of it is, I'd like to hear your take on it. Okay, Connor, uh, sorry if I butchered your last name there, but uh, as far as this, this is a good question about indoctrination of kids in Scientology because there are kid-centric courses that are offered um, for young children. There is a uh, children's uh, course on grammar called Grammar and Communication. There's a uh, children's study course. There's the, uh, there's the basic study manual, which is sort of a one- an illustrated compilation book, a small short book of uh, all the study tech, right, compiled down and uh, made simple and easy to understand. There are uh, other children's study courses. There's a, there's a how to use a dictionary picture book. Um, there's a, uh, I think I mentioned the grammar book, uh, learning how to learn. That's another one of the uh, basic books on, on, for kids. There's also a children's communications course. So those are the, the kid-centric things. I don't think there's a whole lot else. They're not coloring books, although they have illustrations in them. They're not meant to be colored in. The kids are actually doing Scientology. Uh, they're just doing it at a kind of a dumbed-down, simplified version. But they're still doing, the, for example, on the children's communications course, they still do TRs. The training routines where you sit in a chair and look at one another and talk to one and practice talking to one another and acknowledging one another. Um, so those drills are, are created for kids. Uh, 
And of course, all the study material was about learning things and how to learn stuff. So those, you know, there's about four or five courses that kids could do based on that. And once they're done with those things, the thing is that they don't, they don't talk down to kids, they talk up to kids. In other words, they treat kids like adults in little bodies. And while that is hor horrifying and has disgusting, awful consequences when it comes to you know, justifying sexual abuse and uh, throwing kids in with the adults like you know, was done back in the early 1900s with child labor, I mean, just throwing kids into the mines and, and letting them have at it, um, that whole thing is really, really bad, right? But when it comes to the study part of it, the children are given these basic courses on study and then expected to use that to learn at the same level as the adults. They start doing the adult courses and they usually will start with the simpler ones like the, the, the basic introductory services that people do when they come in off the street and are trying to be introduced to Dianetics and Scientology. So they have this full array of courses called the Life Improvement Courses, and they're not easy courses to do. I mean, no six-year-old is ever going to do them. Um, but I have seen 10, 11, and 12-year-olds do them. And they'll sit there, and they'll study the material, and they'll have dictionaries, and they'll be made to look up all the words they don't understand and go through the whole same process. And, um, and get some life skills as a result of that. Because I don't, you know, most of those life improvement courses I don't have a huge problem with. Most of them are pretty common sense, uh, good stuff to know. Or how to, how to organize, how to, you know, get along with others and stuff like that. So that's usually the lineup for children in Scientology. Uh, so yeah, not, not coloring books, but, um, but simple enough stuff that they can get started. And yes, uh, parents are expected to raise their children with Scientology principles, just like I did when I grew up and what my parents did with me, right? There's a lot of langu language and lingo of Scientology that you learn as a kid. Uh, maybe, again, sort of made uh, simpler for children instead of saying a reactive mind, they call it a bank and say you're being, you know, don't, 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 don't be banky right now, you know, if you're acting up or having a tantrum or something, right? Uh, you know, that kind of thing, right? Um, yeah, and that's, that's kind of how it's catered, how, how Scientology is catered to children. Um, and I've seen some adults go really overboard with this stuff where they take the heavy-duty Scientology ethics materials and they indoctrinate their kids on it. And, uh, and, if, and you can see uh, details of that laid out in my interview with the DeWalls, with Larissa Smith and, and Tim and Sylvia DeWall, where we talk in detail about how they raised Larissa with Scientology principles and ethics and stuff like that. So you can check that out. I'll, I'll put a link below to that video. David Bursan, have you read Revolt in the Stars? Is the PDF on WikiLeaks actually Hubbard's writing? And Cat Wilhite, whatever happened to the proposed film Revolt in the Stars? Okay, Revolt in the Stars. This is a screenplay uh, that Hubbard wrote, or a, a treatment. I'm not sure it, what, which term you would use. I've seen a screenplay version of it, though, so I'm pretty sure it's a, that's, how the, that's how it was written. And it is the story of Xenu made public for everyone. And Revolt in the Stars was written in the late 1970s following the release of Star Wars and its success 
Hubbard looked at that and went, oh, well, I could do that. And he turned OT3, the whole Xenu narrative, into a movie. And apparently a really bad one. It reads awful. I haven't read it. I've just read reviews of it. I don't, I can't say one way or the other if the um, copy that the PDF from WikiLeaks is actually the one. Um, I have a copy or two of it in PDF form and, and it wasn't handwritten, so I don't, I don't know what you've got. Um, but it is out there on the net and it can be found and apparently it's pretty bad. They put a lot of effort into shopping this screenplay around in the late 70s um, to get the movie made. I don't think any studio really wanted to pick it up and I think there was maybe a thought that they could make it themselves. Uh, this was in the late 70s when Hubbard was getting involved in, in cinema, you know, making movies for uh, Scientology. He was making training films for auditors. And I think he had the idea that they'd be able to pull this off, but it never really went anywhere. And uh, kind of just got shelved. Now, I'm sure there's a lot more details to the story, but that's just what I can remember off the top of my head from what I've read about this. Um, it was... Uh, like I said, apparently really, really bad. And that doesn't surprise me at all because Hubbard's fiction is pretty bad. His dialogue is awful. His plot elements are usually contrived and, uh, and not very original. Uh, you know, a couple exceptions, but for the most part, not, not really uh, very clever, amazing, original stuff. And, uh, and of course, the subject matter is so odd because um, this is the OT3 story. So, you know, how could Hubbard put this out as a film to the mass broad audiences and yet have it <laughs> have it hidden on OT3? That was something I never really could reconcile. I'll probably have to sit down and read this thing at some point so I can answer that for myself and maybe pass that along to you guys. But that's what I know about this film. David Collier, what are your views on the Bible, Jesus, Christianity, heaven, and hell? Okay, well, you asked, so I'm going to tell you. Uh, and I'm going to preface this by saying that I don't really, uh, I'm not on a soapbox about this. I'm not trying to convince anybody else uh, that my views are, are right and all of theirs are horribly, horribly wrong. Um, but I will say that I do not have any belief in any part of Jesus Christ or modern day or past day Christianity. Um, I don't fall into that faith or belief system in any way. I don't think there's a heaven. I don't think there's a hell. Um, it's just not my cup of tea. And uh, I see uh, from my view of things over the last few years, I do see benefits to having religious belief. And I don't, you know, I'm not down on everybody who chooses to believe in those things. Uh, where I get a little touchy about this stuff is when people who do have those beliefs start dictating to me and other people that we should act in accordance with those beliefs because somebody else has those beliefs. I don't think that's a very uh, good rationale for enforcing, uh, you know, those religious beliefs on me or uh, the religious practice or the ideas, you know, that how to, a lifestyle, whatever you want to, however you want to describe it. Uh, I'm not down with that. You want to believe in that stuff, you go right ahead. Um, I, I do have some disagreements with, uh, with raising children with religious dogma as though it is 
fact or truth or they're, they're, this is the only way the world is and can't be any other way. I think that's uh, kind of not so cool for the kids because they have no judgment and no ability to make up their own mind about such things before it's foisted off on them as though it's true. Um, in the same way that I wish I hadn't had that pushed, you know, hadn't had Scientology principles pushed off on me when I was a kid that way. So those are kind of my views on the subject. I try to be kind of open-minded. I try to um, be tolerant uh, of belief and let other people have whatever religious beliefs they want. Um, not so much interested in the organized religion aspect of those things, though. I don't uh, think that religion should be tax-exempt. I don't think that religions are, um, you know, well put together, <laughs> to say the least, <laughs> in many ways, uh, as far as organ the organization of religion. But, uh, but I hope you can get from what I'm saying here that that doesn't mean that I, that I think your religious beliefs are stupid or idiotic or, uh, you know, that you're an imbecile or something for having faith. You know, whatever you want to believe, go right ahead. Teresa Aikens. Why do Scientologists believe that Scientology isn't a belief system? What is so bad about a belief system in their eyes? Scientologists believe that Scientology is based on science and that it is based on a series of scientific discoveries. The reason they believe that is because L. Ron Hubbard told them that, not because they saw the scientific case studies or test results or have seen peer-reviewed, validated uh, studies done of Scientology by, you know, external sources, because those don't exist, because nobody's ever done that. Uh, so they just listen to what Hubbard says, and Hubbard's pushing pseudoscience, right? In his philosophy of Scientology, he pushes that this is, that these are scientific principles. This is how he talks. And, uh, I mean, Dianetics is called the modern science of mental health, even though it's no such thing. So they get the idea from Hubbard that this has scientific validity and is therefore superior to a faith-based system where you have to believe what you're being told is true simply because the authority who's telling you has the authority and knowledge to know and pass this truth on to you. That is what happens in Scientology, but Scientologists are told that's not what's happening. Right? So they, they have a bad idea or a bad opinion about taking things on faith or simply believing something because it feels good to believe it. No, they, they feel more grounded and more sure and more certain about Scientology because they feel that it is based on principles that are just as sound as chemistry, physics, calculus, like hard sciences, right? Engineering, Hubbard makes lots of allusions to engineering in his work, um, even though he was kind of a failed engineer by study himself. So, uh, so they, you know, would poo-poo the idea that they believe Scientology. Also, the other thing is because they're also told that um, that you don't have to believe in Scientology. You apply Scientology and you see that it works. And therefore, you know with certainty that it is true. Okay. What they miss there is that a subjective experience, like what happens in auditing or what happens when you learn something or when you take some piece of information and apply it in some fashion, uh, if it works once, 
that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to always work in all circumstances, right? But they will, because they have a bias to want to believe in the thing that they are using or applying, they will see that it worked once and then use confirmation bias to ignore every other time that it doesn't work or they won't think critically about the material or come up with uh, ways or examples that that material doesn't work. And so they buy into this rationale that it is a uh, that it is objective. It's uh, not subjective. It's it you know it's proven because it works for them, right? Which again you know if you have a subjective experience, there could be twenty different explanations for why you had that subjective experience. Going with the explanation that's offered to you by you know dubious sources like Scientology is going to give you false ideas <laughs> about what's happened to you and why it happened. So, uh, and this is covered actually even more in my uh, recent video I put out about uh, Scientology Hubbard and, and the church are inseparable. I just posted that last week. So check that out for more discussion on that very specific topic. But that's why they uh, are not down with Scientology being a a faith-based system, and that is actually why I go out of my way to say that Scientology is a faith-based system because I'm I'm showing uh, you know that it is. Okay, so there you go. Okay, it is time for flash answers. Gordon Weir, it sure seems that there are a lot of divorces in the church. Are there more than the national average? That's a good question. Uh, it's going to have to. My answer is going to be based solely on my own experience, um, and I've, if I do a quick tally in my head right now of people, you know, marriages that happened in the Sea Org, specifically, um, I would say that uh, the percentage of successful marriages probably, yeah, Nash probably beats, the, or sorry, is probably worse than the national average. In other words, there's, I think, there's more divorces in the Sea Org. Uh, then there are, uh, you know, it's greater than 50% marriages fall apart. Uh, Scientology-wise, though, no. I, I didn't particularly notice that in the church overall. I think people in the, in, in the outside world, public Scientologists, spend more time, you know, getting to know each other and making sure they're compatible and, and, and living together and going through that whole thing more so than people in the Sea Org who, who can't, you know, do anything more than kiss each other before they have to get married. So that's, you know, it's a little bit faster and looser and then therefore the marriages fall apart more quickly. Logamug. How many times have you read Dianetics from cover to cover? Well, it was one of the very first things I ever did when I, or tried to do, I should say. I didn't finish, I didn't get past chapter three when I first, first, first got into Scientology. And it was many years until I actually did sit down and read that book all the way through. But once I did, I had to read it again, and then the basics came out, and I had to read it again, and I think I read it twice. So four times, you know, four and a half times, um, that's, yeah. Dylan Ames. Chris, can and would a Scientologist take Viagra? Many older people suffer from erectile dysfunction. Would a Scientologist be able to take a pill for that, or would they have to go into session, which probably means no sex ever again, since it's not a psychological problem if you're, say, 70 years old? 
I'm quite sure there are many Scientologists who have suffered from erectile dysfunction and have tried to deal with it by getting auditing to handle whatever aberration or problem or situation was going on. I never saw that happen when I was in the church, but I'm sure it's, it's happened. Um, but I'm sure that there are also just as many Scientologists who probably uh, just get some Viagra <laughs> if they got a problem and deal with it that way. Um, but again, this is something that never came across my plate one way or the other when I was in, so I'm just supposing right now. Okay guys, so that is the uh, answers for this week. I hope you found these educational, informative, and entertaining. Uh, please leave any questions, comments, feedback in the comment section below, and I will get them and I will add the questions to my queue. And uh, we'll just keep rolling these things out week after week. Thanks very much for coming around. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.